Full Service Radio is proudly supported and hosted by Simplecast, the easiest way for a podcast creator to publish and distribute audio on the internet. For more information, visit Simplecast.com. Welcome to Junctional Thinking on Full Service Radio, broadcasting live from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. I am your host, Pierre Vigilance. Um, my career path has taken me through medical and public health training to leadership positions in the nonprofit, government, and academic sectors, as well as advisory consulting. And on that journey, I've gained an appreciation for the concept that health is about more than medicine and healthcare can reasonably be expected to provide. It takes diverse, innovative partnerships to positively impact health outcomes. The Junctional Thinking Podcast is a place where we get to explore the creative problem-solving opportunities and innovations that exist at The Junction, a place I define as the intersection of health and social impact interventions. So each episode will be joined by guests from a range of sectors with the commonality between them being that they all have some impact on health. From community engagement, user experience and creativity to housing, transportation, journalism, education, finance and healthcare, we delve into the ways these innovative influences seek to impact social and health outcomes from their own perspectives. And so this week, it's... It, just the, it's, I'm really fortunate to have a really great network of friends and colleagues who do a whole bunch of different things. I'm very blessed and fortunate in that way. And some of the people who have been on the show have just been professional colleagues. Others have been people who I know to some extent socially. This gentleman who we're speaking to today, uh, Travis Waldron, who's a, a reporter at the Huffington Post, I've had the, the pleasure of getting to know in a couple of different settings. One of the more painful ones being as a fellow Arsenal fan. Uh, we follow that team, for those of you who don't know, the English Premier League's most underachieving team. Um, and we've been, we've been hanging out, watching those games and commiserating for the last few years. Um, but uh, he's also been a, a really good friend and somebody who I've enjoyed talking to. So I thought that because of his lens, writing at this intersection of sports and culture, it would be a really good opportunity to get into some social impact oriented conversation here today. So Travis, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. You're more than welcome. Could you tell us a bit about sort of how you get to write at this intersection? Like, why is it that you're writing at this particular place, sports and culture? People write about sports, they write about culture. Not too many people write at the intersection of that. How did you get to that? Without going too far into the backstory, a lot of it was the realization. I was working at a, a different place called Think Progress, okay. uh, which is a progressive website. Mm -hmm. And it was the realization that we didn't cover sports and that progressive minded people often didn't pay attention to the political impact of sports. Okay. Um, but when you actually look into the world of sports, everything is political. We know that more now. Right. Uh, because the last few years have been dominated by stories like Colin Kaepernick. Right. Uh, Olympics, so on and so forth. Right. But back when we started around 2011, 2012, it was kind of new and there weren't that many people examining sports through the explicitly political lens and explicitly progressive lens. Um, my view on that was shaped in a lot of ways, even if I didn't really know it at the time by growing up in Louisville, Kentucky, right. which mm -hmm. was the hometown of Muhammad Ali. Right. And seeing him as a distinctly political figure. Right. Not just a great boxer, but somebody who used his platform as a boxer to 
say things he believed right. and to challenge people's views in a way uh, that they weren't being challenged, yep. especially by a black man in the 1960s and 70s right. and a Muslim. In, um, in Kentucky. Right. And, and at the time, um, Brazil, which is a country I cover a lot now, was approaching the World Cup and the Olympics. Mm-hmm. And we were looking at a lot of conversations that were being had there about stadium spending, police violence, uh, spending on mega events generally. Mm-hmm. And, and you start to look at, well, governments hand this money out. Politicians hand this money out. Right. And the same is true here, whether it's uh, arenas and stadiums, whether it's antitrust exemptions for sports leagues. Right. Our labor laws govern contracts that athletes sign. Right. And it just started to shape this view that all of this is political. Right. And by not covering it, we're not actually covering sports and we're not actually covering politics because we're leaving these two things in separate silos when right. in reality, they interact every day. Right. Now, I think that, that that explanation hopefully has our listener sort of understand and, and sort of nodding thinking to themselves, well, yeah, I didn't really think about how those two things intersect. But then we've been forced to think about them. Some of the stadium deal things we, may, we might not have been as involved or engaged in because they happen in a sort of more abstract way. I think that things, though, like the Colin Kaepernick mm-hmm. piece specifically. Well, and there's a perfect one right a few now. Different things. Go ahead. A, the, world, the Women's World Cup is going uh, on right now. Yep. The United States women's national team is the best women's national team in the world, right. historically. Yes. That's not an accident, and it's not necessarily the doing of the U.S. Soccer Federation. In large part, the women's soccer program in the United States benefited from the passage of Title IX okay. in 1973, okay. which gave women hear equal rights to play sports at the high school right. and scholastic level. Were it not for that, we, you know, women's sports wouldn't have developed in this country as fast as they have. There are other factors, obviously. Right. But again, that was an explicitly political act that had nothing to do with sports. Sports, the word sports aren't mentioned in, in the law whatsoever, right. but because it applied to higher education and high school education, it mandated equality in sports too and we're seeing the outgrowth of that in one way in the success of the united states women's national team interesting so how then if you look at that example and think about how that law had no mention of sports in it and yet has impacted sports there are probably other policies and you know um, regulation measures that don't have health in them for mm-hmm. example, but impact health and health outcomes. And well, we that, one has. that one has. There's, that economic, one sure. there's economic studies that show that women's health has improved Absolutely. by participation in sports. sports. Yep. Their educational, their economic, their health outcomes are all improved Absolutely. by younger participation in sports, Absolutely. much of which is mandated at the school level by that law. Absolutely. Shout out to DC Scores, by the way, the after-school program that promotes spoken word, soccer specifically and school engagement particularly for elementary and uh, and middle school kids in in the dc area but if we sort of pivot from that sport that particular sports analogy back to say the the kaepernick piece and the whole the the race relations part of things you mentioned it a little bit with respect to your commentary about ali and his and his taking a stand um when kaepernick first took the knee a lot of things happened. Uh, not all of them. Not all of them good for him necessarily. But you know, sort of revitalized recently by the Nike ads and all those sorts of things. How do you see some of that sus- being a sustainable force for changing policy over time, or is it not? No, I think it's 
obvious that it is. I mean, we're still talking about Colin Kaepernick, right. what, three years later? Three years, yeah, yeah. Um, Colin Kaepernick hasn't played an NFL game in two years. Right. And yet his presence still hangs over not just the NFL, but over the entire sports world. Mm-hmm. Not to keep bringing this back but to the Women's World Cup, but Megan Rapino, who's on the U.S. team, team right. was one of the first white athletes to take a knee mm-hmm. in solidarity. She also happens to be LGBT. Right. She's an open lesbian. She right. came out, she took the knee, and U.S. soccer passed a policy mandating their players stand up for the anthem. Uh, we're, we're having these conversations because of actions like that. Uh, and it, 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 to go back even to the original question, I think one of the powers of sports is that it puts a different lens on those conversations. Uh, the Black Lives Matter movement was happening. Right. And happened independent of anything that would have happened in the NFL. And yet... Colin Kaepernick and the choice of Eric Reed and other athletes brought that conversation into the NFL. LeBron James and other athletes brought that conversation into the NBA. NBA. Mm-hmm. And, and you realize then, oh, these dudes aren't just rich black athletes. They're black men who are subjected, no matter their wealth, right. to the same dynamics. Right. You know, yeah. Warwick Dunn, a former NFL player, was pulled over by police mm-hmm. for no reason, mm-hmm. taken out of his car. Um, Colin Kaepernick, a black man standing up to a largely white executive class and ownership class in the NFL, doesn't have a job because he spoke out. Right. That happens, you know, that's parallel. Right. It's intertwined with the conversation. Very much so. That happened with Black Lives Matter, that happens around race every day. Every day, right. The same conversations we have about sexuality. Feminism, LGBTQ people happen in sports the way they happen outside of society in the rest of society every day. You you can't divorce the sports world from the rest of society because it exists in our political society. Right, and so it only tracks that it will be just as political as the society society around around it. it. Right, no, it makes a lot of sense. We are on full service radio with uh, Travis Waldron, a reporter at the Huffington Post. And we sort of want to see if we can turn a little bit to, as you were talking about, growing up in Louisville and, and now listening to different voices. So there's two, sort of, two questions in here because, you know, we talked about the whole junctional thinking notion of being a perpetual learner and being an effective listener. Being a reporter, I think it's obviously you have to be a great listener and a great learner. What sort of, who are the, or who or what are the things that influence you um, with respect to your, your progressive lens? And, and, and where do you learn from? And how do you tweak that lens as you sort of move through your work? Um, I mean, I think one of the things that I've thought about in the last few years especially is going to public school in mm-hmm. Louisville was a big one. Um, in part because Louisville's school system was fairly well desegregated by the by the standards the fairly poor standards of school desegregation in the united states Mm -hmm. it was it was one of the better ones uh so i went to school with kids from different racial ethnic socioeconomic backgrounds from day one all the way through school and and i think that had a a big influence on how i saw the world uh because i got to see different perspectives different experiences and then, you know, obviously come into a city like this where that's also the case um, has helped. Uh, I think in terms of specific influences, I had great teachers. I had people who pushed me uh, and taught me to challenge the world. 
right. as I saw it. Right. You know, Something that, you seem to be quite comfortable or, doing. Right, that, that everything isn't as you see it. And right. I think that was the, you know, I'll point back. I, so there were two teachers in particular that stand out. My fifth grade teacher was a guy named Ben Truitt. And um, he was an umpire in baseball. He loved sports. And I loved sports. And we got along because of that. And he pushed me all the time. Quit doing book reports on sports people. Quit doing, like, learn the world around you. Like, learn more. Yeah, don't just do the stuff you like all right, the time. Right, right. Um, and then I had a teacher in high school named Tracy Bennett who, you know, I, I always loved to write and I always loved to argue, which I know you'll find shocking. Um, and I see law school in your future. Yeah, and you just I, won't let it happen. And I'm sure she got tired of it at some point in, in the school year. But at one point, she finally just took me aside and said, you should go to journalism school. Mm. And I was like, what, what is that? Like, the newspaper had always been the thing I loved to read, but I thought the people in it were just like, at, you know, superstars. Like, they might as well have been like Michael Jordan. I didn't oh, okay. think you could actually do that. Okay. Um, okay. And, okay. So you put them on. Okay. That's great, though. But you put them on at a particular level. Yeah. I mean, I always saw journalism as kind of a. It, I don't want to get too navel gazy about it because now I'm not sure I think of myself that highly, but. There's some kid somewhere, Travis. Right. But I saw it as. Way. You know, I saw it as this kind of really important piece of democracy and society. Mm. And that you can't, you know, it wasn't just that I loved to write. Mm -hmm. It was something where I saw that I could use as a platform to, to do work that made an impact on things. Right. And I still definitely believe that. Yeah. <laughs> the current moment is making it harder to believe anybody's listening. But, right. Um, but it's still an underlying thesis part of your right. raison d'etre, if you will. Like the impact is something you want to have. Right. I mean, we get, you know, the average person, does, you, we get to go to, I get to go to work every day. Right. And answer or try to answer a question I have about the world. Okay. Whether it's, why is this this way? Mm. Should it be this way? Who's making it this way? And how can we change it? And I think, you know, there are obviously a lot of journalists who don't, don't see maybe that as their role. Um, I'm lucky to work at a place and lucky that places exist where we can kind of, you know, we're not the traditional elite journalists who kind of view from, view from the middle or view from nowhere. We're, we're, we have the ability to look at the world and say, this is messed up. Right. Or this is something that needs to change. And I think that's, that's kind of inherent in everybody who does this job, but who it's something I be, believe really strongly in. About. That, okay, uh, it's a pat, it's, it's part of the, why I do it. And so as you were mentioning that, that, so this is something that needs to change and we do have a question about it. Then it begs the question, who do you go to speak to and who do you listen to in order to help inform you so that you can do the writing now you could choose to listen to one end of the spectrum or the other end of the spectrum or all of it or just make it up so how do you decide who to listen to um as you go through answering some of these questions anybody who will answer the phone call me <laughs> and, and pick up and his twitter address <laughs> have his phone number right attached to it um no i think it's it's a balance you know um I think it depends on what the story is. You know, there's some places where expert commentary is always the best. And I, I think when you say, do you go to one side or the other? I, 
I think it's really important, even though HuffPost, you know, we, we identify as a, a progressive outlet. Okay. Um, it's not a secret. But I, I value listening to the, the people on the other side or people right. who have a different perspective, too. Absolutely. Um, it's not like some omnipresent, know-everything role. Like, I'm here to learn. I'm here okay. to, you know, shape. I need to t- learn how to tell the story to make you learn how to learn from the story. Right. If that makes sense, I guess. Um, But then there, you know, there are certain stories where it's you can hear from the experts, but it doesn't. You have to hear from the people who are being affected. Uh, You know, I I went to the Olympics in Rio, Mm -hmm. which was uh, in 2016, which had been kind of the guiding star of the I'm doing sports and politics coverage. You know, Rio was on the horizon the first four years of that as this kind of like massive event with all sorts of public interest questions around it. For multiple reasons. Right. And to, you know, it was one thing to report on that from here. And you, you talk to academics about the economic impacts of mega events. You talk to academics about the, the lasting security implications of these mega events and the policies that are implemented. You talk to politicians about what they were trying to do and how it failed or, or how it succeeded none of that was ever a replacement for then going to Rio and talking to people on the ground and talking to community leaders whose homes had been bulldozed. Right. Talking to, you know, I'd read those stories and they're impactful and they, they leave an impression on you. But then when you're standing outside the home with the guy, yes. Whose house got bulldozed. Yeah. uh, When you're in a neighborhood that where the police have locked it down for most of the Olympics, to shield like the tourists from the poor people. Right. Like you can't replace that impact. And so it's a constant, I mean, I think so much of that is, I think there's a view a lot of times of, of journalism from people who've never done it, that we set out to, you know, it's kind of, you know, everything and you set out to just do it. And the narrative is there and, and you want to tell it a lot of, sometimes, you know, the story, you're trying to write from the get-go. Okay. Other times, there's, there's a shaping of it. There's a, a bottom-up element of it, of you learn something by listening to these by people. By listening to these people, right. And, and I think one of the, uh, to go back again to like the kind of reason I do this is, and, and a reason why I think it's important to do it through sports is to tell the stories of people who are impacted by sports too. And to tell people, to tell the stories of people who, for lack of a better word, kind of get bulldozed out of the narrative of sports because we'd rather not think about the impact of sports. Wow, wow, okay. And, okay. you know, when we build a stadium, there's a neighborhood that was there. So let me ask you, we're going to put a, we're going to put a pin in it right there because that's, a, you know, <laughs> swinging a wrecking ball into this conversation, and it's a really good place to just remind people about so who we are, where we are, Johnsonal Thinking on uh, – Full Service Radio. I'm your host, Pierre Vigilance. We're here with Travis Waldron, who's a reporter at the Huffington Post who writes at the intersection of, of sports and culture, but it's the intersection of sports, culture, politics, and impact, and all of, sort of, all of that goes along with that. And you've said something 
just now that another another most if not all of the guests on this show have spoken to without even specifically being asked about it which is the authority in speaking to the people who are impacted by whatever it is we're talking about mm-hmm. because so many times we have our own lived experience and we can presume that our lived experience is sufficient to be able to tell the story of somebody else when in reality it is far from it um and respecting that there's that gap is what pushes us to try to ask the question of the people who are impacted. You have a piece you wrote recently about the Olympics, um, and I think there was conversation in there about Sochi, and there was conversation in there, also not just Sochi, about Sochi, Russia, there was conversation in there about China, there was conversation in there about Brazil, um, even a bit about South Africa. And, and I was down in South Africa for the World Cup and, I, and in Brazil for the World Cup, but didn't get into any games in Brazil, but saw the impact that you were referring to a couple of years before the Olympics. And in 2010, down in South Africa, saw a number of things that clearly were major investments in, in physical structures that there was not going to be a significant use for thereafter. You talk a little bit about, because the development piece is something that impacts us here in the US too, about how domestically and abroad, if you could bring it domestically for a second, you've seen see some of this construction and development stuff be extractive as opposed to inclusive. Uh huh. Is there anything that you sort of that pops to mind as you think with respect to that? All of them. <laughs> um, I mean, the big story I did in Rio was on housing. Uh, it wasn't even really tied to the venues, some of the housing that they displaced. It was, we need access roads to the venues. Oh, wow. Okay, so it was infrastructure. It, it was infrastructure. It was these things that were touted as improvement. And I think one of the things about sports and sporting events, and particularly from a development standpoint, is that they kind of prey on our love of these. The, the organizers and the developers, they, they kind of hope and wish and are mostly right in a lot of senses, that because we love the sports, that will keep us from looking at the underbelly. Um, the Olympics are a perfect example. The, I, I write a lot of critical things about the Olympics. I, I think the Olympics are mostly bad, and I'm on the verge. I mean, I wrote earlier this year, last year, that I think we should probably end them because I think the overall impact of them is negative okay that said the two weeks i spent in rio during the olympics were amazing the like the the infectiousness of so many people from different countries and cultures coming together for sports is is neat you get the argument that they make that this is bringing the world together in a peaceful harmonious way right it's nonsense on the like academic side of that like there's no real huge effect on like stopping wars and fostering peace and all that. Right. At least not that I've seen. Um, but it is real while you're there for the few privileged people who get to go. And that's the, the underbelly of that though, is what about the people who are not yeah. just not able to go, but actively lose something from it. Right. And, and one of the things that I, I started to look into around Rio and I think it changed the way I reported on stadiums and sports and development writ large was before that I had looked at a lot of the academic 
stuff, the studies, the economics, the theory of it, which is all very compelling. You know, stadiums don't drive the development that they say they do, uh, that economic studies or that like kind of the booster studies say they do, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Like there's no real positive impact from them on an economic standpoint. Compelling enough. But then you see the actual human impact and it's like, well, okay, we have to connect this kind of theorizing, this theoretical in the studies stuff to the real world. And, and so I went to Atlanta. I had been in London in uh, 2015, which was three years after they hosted the Olympics. And a okay. guy who lost his home took me around where his house had been. And, and now you see this big empty park. This is in London. In London. Right. Like right where the Olympic Stadium is, right. the new park. And he takes me around. And he said, well, here's this beautiful park. Do you know what was here before the Olympics? My house. A park. Oh, over here, there's an arena. Do you know what was there before the Olympics? My home. Right. And now, you know, I don't live there anymore. Right. You, I went to Atlanta, and it's the same sort of thing. They tore down these housing projects. They forced people out. You go to Rio. You, you talk to these people, and, you know, they lost their homes. They lost all of these things. And for what? For your three-week party? Mm-hmm. And it... it it just kind of it, it raises this question about it that is like is is this worth it you mm. know like it's easy to make the case if you're just thinking of the theoretical right it's not good for the economy but it's fun maybe we're just paying for the fun but then when you talk to the people that lose right. everything right it's like wait is this worth it and this is not just an olympics thing right this happens in most instances of stadium construction this happens all around the world of sports right not just the countries that host the olympics it happens here it happens in right you know every american city right and i want us to we're going to take a short break but when we come back i want us to sort of bring that bring bring it from that every four year mega event down to some of the more quote unquote micro but more regular events that happen with respect to displacement and, and the like. You are on uh, Junctional Thinking on Full Service Radio, broadcasting live from the Lion Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C., with Pierre Vigilance, your host, and uh, Travis Wardron. We will take a short break and be right back with you. <laughs> Thank you. 
Welcome back. You are on Full Service Radio. This is Junctional Thinking Podcast, broadcasting live from the Lion Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Pierre Vigilance, and I'm here again with friend, fellow Arsenal commiserator, Travis Waldron, a reporter at the Huffington Post. And we've been having a conversation about a few different things, but primarily the, the issues associated with and how, how much sports culture, politics, but how much sports impacts people beyond just being able to be spectators of the sport and how it impacts them potentially in a very real way around things that we don't often talk about, i.e. their housing. Um, and we were talking about the Olympics and the, and the, and the massive investments that are made in uh, infrastructure and stadiums, etc., for the sake of a few, a short, very short period of time every four years, but then we have stadiums being built in the U.S. all the time. Um, and, uh, you know, these teams, new teams are developed, and, you know, there's a followership, and it's, it's great from a spectator perspective, but to your point, there's also displacement. And I know there's some folks that I've had the privilege of working with who like to think about development as potentially, instead of being extractive, meaning developers come in, get the appropriate tax credits, etc., funding, build something, they bring external resources in to do that building, they uh, don't necessarily use locally sourced anything, be that personnel, materials, or whatever it is, so that the supply chain going into that product is not necessarily local, and then the skills necessary to maintain that building, be it from the concession stand all the way through to the HVAC, is not something that is built into the community that is sitting right adjacent to that stadium. What are your thoughts on, you react to the notion of making it such that if we're going to do these buildings, if we're going to do these things, build these roads, etc., that we make it so that there is a local impact that is positive and maybe sustainable in the workforce side, for example, could, could that make you, would that make you feel differently about some of these things domestically and even potentially abroad? It would, if they did it. Right. And no, no, I said if. Yeah, I, I mean... Because that's not typically the way it works. I, there, I, I, I don't cover this every day anymore. Okay. I'm, I'm sure there are... I'm sure someone can give me an example of a stadium that was built the right way mm-hmm. um, in terms of cost and financing and public impact. Right. Um, people here will argue that the arena, the basketball arena in Chinatown, a gallery place was was largely done the right way. Okay. Uh, I can hear that argument. I, I understand it. I think Chinatown would have developed on its own anyway. I mean, right. look at the rest of the city. Right. True. Um, but the thing, it's like, to me, it's like, prove it. Right. Right. You know, it's to, not to keep this in the total Olympic context, but they've been talking about reform for ever since Sochi. When the, Who's the they, though? The IOC? The IOC. Right. And, and the local organizing, the International Olympic Committee and the local organizing committees that make it up have, have been talking about reform for years. And it's, you know, do it. Because so far, all you've done is create public relations. Mm. And so don't, you know, this is, again, goes back to one of the things about working at a place like HuffPost where we're, we're not always bound by the conventions. You know, if we find out something, we can sort of just say it. And it's, you know, 
it's one of those things about the Olympics that it's no, you're you don't you're not serious. Right. You're not you're you're trying to fleece everyone. You're trying to pull the the wool back over everyone's eyes so we go back to enjoying sports. It's it's the point about you know kind of preying on our love of these events and it's the one thing that I've always kept in mind when writing about sports is I do this because I love them. I love sports. I like unconditionally almost. <laughs> But I want better. Right. I want them to be better. Right. Because I don't want my enjoyment of these games to have to come at the expense of people's homes right. and their lives and things like that. So, you know, if we find it, I'm sure there's, there's got to be a way to do it. But do it. <laughs> Who do you think another element of junctional thinking is this notion of, you know, finding new and innovative partners to work with? to meet a particular goal or outcome. So if reform is a word that's just being thrown around, but it's not being enacted, is it because we, well, first of all, it's probably a function of incentive. There's no real incentive to, to inspire people to do things a particular way. And when cities put incentives in place, like tax breaks, for example, or breaks on interest rates on loans, then they can inspire developers to do things slightly differently. As you've looked at it or thought about this, are there just very innovative or new partners who might need to be in play in order to make some of this, stay in this development lane, better and less extractive? Yeah, the politicians. Oi. Oh, I mean, I think the, go. I think here the, I think the, the rabbit hole we go. No, I don't, I don't no, think okay. it's a rabbit hole. I mean, I think if you want a stakeholder in these conversations is the politicians need to do their job. So they're already in it, but they're in they it, need to but they need to be, it. they need to go be ahead. providing the actual oversight instead of seeing this as some like equal handshake partnership. Right. But, and, and to your point then, I mean, I guess if, the, if, if, if a politician or, or, or people in that realm see the constituent as a, the, the feet going to the polls, as Rock Branch said, I think it was last week, uh, as being something that they wanted to facilitate, then maybe by putting a workforce program in place that was not just a three-month thing, but mm -hmm. actually was a sustainable job opportunity, might get that person who got that job and now has a sustainable wage for his, his or her family to come to the polls to vote for you again. Sure. Right. So is that, is that the kind of accountability that you're referring to? The accountability of that, the accountability of the actual oversight of the funding. Okay. Because, you know, the thing here is with these, so for staying on stadiums. Yes. Because um, they're big and expensive. Right. And, and there's, there's an opportunity cost to them, right? Okay. It's not just that we're spending money on them. It's that city budgets are generally, city and state budgets are generally pretty limited. And so every dollar that you subsidize for this large entertainment venue that is mostly going to go to the benefit of wealthy sports owners means that a dollar you're not putting in schools, mm. a dollar you're not putting into hospitals, mm. a dollar you're not putting into some other, any other public, yes. right. Well, yeah. And, and you know, like not to keep using Rio as this example, I mean, it's a particularly bad example, so it's right. easy to go back to, but like, they sold this dream and, and you have people protesting out there before the world cup saying, and the Olympics, so, you know, we want our schools and hospitals up to the standard of these stadiums. Stadiums, Right. And I think 
you know, that's the job of the politicians. That's yeah. not really the job of the developer. Okay. The developer's job is to do the development to, that they're on contract the for. Right. right. The, the job of the politicians is to provide the oversight. And I think, you know, to be perfectly honest, I, I think a whole lot of media can do better at this. A mm. whole lot of reporters could. I think they have. They've got, we've gotten much better as an industry of, of covering the business side of sports and not just saying, oh, yeah, cool, this stadium's going to create 10,000 jobs. Now they're, they're temporary kind of, Bro. you know, jobs. But um, I think people are more, people in the media scrutinize it more. But I, th- I still think we can do better. Yeah, yeah, that undoubtedly. You're on Full Service Radio, Travis Wardrop, Huffington Post, your host here, Pierre Vigilance. This is the Junctional Thinking Podcast. And we're talking about few different things related to we've pivoted to the development part of things and the partners that might make it work better if we're going to continue to do what we've been doing which is you know build stadiums and other things for the purposes of sports entertainment if you there's a, obviously there there's a a time for every conversation um and as you mentioned you know the Women's World Cup right now presents an opportunity for that particular conversation, one about gender equity, um, one about VAR, <laughs> one about a whole bunch of different things. But there is also some times where we may have had a really good idea. You may have wanted to write about something in particular at a particular time, and you've taken it up to whoever it is that you have to get the nod from, and they've said, no, Travis, not today. And you've been like... Uh, you want to call my editors? They can tell you how often that happens. <laughs> well, the thing is, so you've had to then exhibit some degree of patience. But then, and that story may never come up again, but it might. And so can you tell us about a time where you have had to sort of, I talked to all of my guests about this, exert some significant amount of patience at the moment, and then it's, and that patience has paid off later on I mean was there a particular story that comes to mind with respect to that? Uh, we've already talked about that story oh, which one was it the, the housing story about the, the Olympics st- oh, okay um, you wanted to write about that I, before? Mean, I, was, I was in London in 2015 the True. story did well I was in London in 2014 right. the study didn't come out or the story didn't come out until August of 2016 when um, I had another job <laughs> okay. um, I, I think that one was less of an editor's telling me to be patient and more of a I don't know this yet I don't, okay. I don't know the story yet. Okay. I don't know how to tell the story the right way yet. Okay. So the story wasn't finished? In no, no. It was, a, it was a kind of keep learning, keep uh, figuring it out. And then I went to my editors at, when I switched jobs and was at HuffPost. I went to them and I was like, I need to write this story. And they were like, oh, we're not really sold. Um, we don't want to send you to Brazil just for this story. Go to Atlanta. See what okay. happened in Atlanta. Okay. So I did that. And then I was like, okay, now... We have a reporter in Rio. Call him. Mm. How can we link this all together? And we figured it out. And right. it, uh, we told a bigger, better story about how this isn't just a story about Rio de Janeiro. It happens at every Olympics. Right. And now we're telling the story that it's going to happen at the next Olympics. Yes. And it's going to happen at the Olympics after that. Yes. And the one after that. Yeah. And so instead of just a kind of tug at your heart story about how bad this is in Rio, it was a, a comprehensive kind of this is the way the Olympics work. Nothing, and, it, it, yeah. and that was a, I think that was a lesson for me as a journalist of, you don't always know the story when you think you do. And so be patient on it. Um, 
in terms of, I mean, there's, a, I could run down the list of, I can pull up my Google Docs and show you all sorts of stories that I didn't, didn't write because editors told me not to or because right. I didn't have the belief in myself to do it. Um, well, let's, let's, let's me, you said something just now, it's just sort of highly taggable to me anyway, which is like you don't always know the story like you think you do. And that in and of itself sh- couldn't should be a reason to hold off on it at the mo- so and this is this keeps coming up, which is why I think it's why it's sort of risen to being one of the five skills, behaviors, and ideals that all junctional thinkers need to have is patience. Because uh, Eric Letzinger talked about the need to put a social impact bond deal on ice for mm-hmm. a second, while time, the market, and other things came together to provide more learning, right? You just said, I need to learn more about this. Your editors, someone might have thought, hey, this is a really good idea, but let's do this and this. And I think that the, um, it's interesting because people might expect to hear the story coming out of Rio because they may have heard or seen stories about the favelas and all those other things. Right, and the bias of it's a developing country. Exactly, and you all know. of those things. But then when you say London and Atlanta then all of a sudden it's just like, hold on, you had a story that was similar to Rio in Atlanta, from Atlanta and from London as well? When was that? Mm-hmm. And you say 2012. And 1996. <laughs> and uh, right, well, exactly. and it's one of those things, it's not getting frustrated too, right? Because like there are times, mm-hmm. I write about a lot about Brazil still because of the Olympics gave way to political stories that I was interested in. Right. Uh, and there are a lot of times where there can be a... Um, you have to make this relevant to an American audience. And to me, it's like, why? And then you think about how to do it, and it's, oh, this is now 10 times better. Right. And more interesting. And people are going to read it. <laughs> right. Right. So that's the, and that piece is important because we have just a couple minutes left to sort of like dig into this. That's important because oftentimes we don't figure out how to translate into something that people are going to actually use. And, uh, you know, this conversation could go on for a very long time. I really appreciate you coming on today. Um, it's Full Service Radio, the Junctional Thinking Podcast with your host, Pierre Vigilance. I've had the great, great pleasure of having Travis Waldron, reporter from the Huffington Post, talk to me about a whole bunch of different things. We're going to have to put a pin in this and do a part two at some point. But thank you very much for joining me. On Thanks the for having today. me. It's been a really fun time. Thanks a lot. And we'll see you on the Junctional Thinking Podcast again soon. Thanks for listening to this program on Full Service Radio, broadcasting and recording from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. Full Service Radio programming can be accessed live and archived on fullserviceradio.org. Our talk programming is available on most podcast apps like iTunes and Stitcher, and our DJ sets are available on mixcloud.com slash fullserviceradio. Full Service Radio features over 30 weekly shows and over 50 local hosts covering every topic imaginable. If you want to be a guest or get involved, email us at info at fullserviceradio.org. Follow us on Twitter at FullServiceRDO, on Instagram and Facebook at Full Service Radio. Thanks for listening.